politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house here for Wednesday, June 23rd. As always, here for those of you who are yearning for liberty, yearning for solutions, yearning to get back to normalcy. But unfortunately, we never will be normal again. Instead, we have to chart a new path, how to start something new. And this is really what we're going to be focusing on as we approach this momentous July 4th, where on the one hand, we have terrible tyranny in this country. On the other hand, there are enormous opportunities with Democrats in charge at a federal level to finally get people focused, which it appears they are. They weren't focused under the Trump administration to actually do the surgery we need to do. Now, later today, I'm going to have on Dr. Peter McCullough again. Um, he has done yeoman's work exposing the problems with the mRNAs and the other phony vaccines, uh, what government is trying to censor. Truly insane. Um, you know, I was thinking about how we have reached a point where our government would actually do this to us. Like, come on, you're not going to censor information on that. Come on, you're not going to not just approve, but basically mandate the use of something in our body that is so unproven and based on what we already know is very problematic. But if you look at everything our government is doing in totality, it actually does make sense. I mean, really think about it. There's reports yesterday now that DHS is inviting back thousands, even tens of thousands of illegals who were denied in court a process they should have never gotten, but denied asylum, and they're being invited back. And I guarantee you it's going to be paid for on taxpayer dime while Americans are treated like servants, like slaves. Just yesterday, Larvita McFarker in, in Minnesota, she had her appeal denied to reinstate her license. She lost her business license for simply living. She can't serve people at a restaurant she built with her own sweat and tears. We have two people arrested at a Loudoun County school board meeting because they were able to just declare it a non, you know, just a, an illegal assembly. And those Loudoun County sheriff's deputies are going to have a lot to answer for. Maybe they need a little BLM in their life. As I told you before, I am rapidly reaching the point where I support abolishing the police because we've already abolished any good thing they can do. So their existence could only be used against us, could be used for tyranny. We already suffer the anarchy. So you know what? We may as well be on our own. But the good news is that school board meetings appear to be the flashpoint for a new Tea Party-style movement that, unlike last time, hopefully won't get hijacked and hopefully we could actually you know, take this across the goal line. And that goal line, mark my words, is has to be creating red counties and red states that are as autonomous as, as could be and eventually forming some sort of federation. That is what needs to be done. Now, in order to do that, before we get to, to uh, some of the main content today, 
I do want to get to our first sponsor, which really ties into what we're talking about, constitutioncoach.com, our buddies at Patriot Academy run by Rick Green. You know, until now, we've been talking a lot about the Constitution Defensive Handgun course out in Front Sight, Nevada, and certainly sign up for that at constitutioncoach.com. I'll probably be at the October 31st trip, the one beginning then. You'll see there's other dates there. It could be I'll be at more than one, but that is the one I'm aiming for right now. But I, I actually never told you guys about some of the other good stuff that Patriot Academy does. Um, you know, while we wait for the next trips, because it's obviously too hot in the summer to go out to front site, they have other things as well. Um, they have a constitution coach program where basically, you know, Rick gives the most entertaining and inspirational constitution courses ever created. Uh, he actually does the teachings from Independence Hall and their online courses are totally free. You, and you could become a constitution coach for free. So you could teach his courses in your living room with 10, 15, 20, 30 people. And that's a great way to build up our state teams for Constitution Action. So where you could learn about the Constitution together, but then you take the inspiration and you say, wait a minute, if the Constitution has been violated to that degree, the social compact, well, that triggers the unalienable right expressed in the Declaration that people often forget about which we're going to focus on this year, and that is the right and indeed the duty to throw off a tyrannical government. Now, I don't think we're in the place to do what they did in 1776, but I think what we do have is because we do have a created government to use the doctrine of least magistrate, and in in the reddest parts of the country, start there with the local officials to use legitimate organs of government to start doing this um but anyway check it out at constitutioncoach.com you can get signed up to be a coach host a class join one of more than a thousand classes taking place throughout the nation you could also um they do have a patriot academy for 16 to 24 year olds every year at the texas capitol in austin um i believe it's the first week in august this year it's probably too late to register but if you have a kid that is rising, you know, rising junior, senior in high school, college. Um, think about that. It's, it's just a great way to do the opposite of what the experience they're getting in school is uh, these days. So, yeah, go to constitutioncoach.com or go to Patriot Academy, their website, and you can find a lot of good information there. Now, folks, again, I was just thinking today as we go through the lengths to which they are willing to censor us. So yesterday, someone was passing around this article from Health Impact News that the, the European Union has their own like VIR system, the adverse drug reaction um, reports to the vaccine that the CDC does, but this is the European Union. In their database... This article shows there's 15,472 dead, 1.5 million injured, and about 50% of them, over 700,000, seriously injured from, you know, a mixture of the vaccines. This is uh, Moderna, Pfizer, J&J, and AstraZeneca, which is obviously very common in Europe. 15,400 deaths, 1.5 million injuries, right? Even if, the, okay, you, you'll say the denominator is huge. But that's a big deal. 
that is what we would have always considered before this came out to be an unacceptable level of risk for this era that we live in, the modern standards. And like, this is a fact. And again, remember, these databases are capturing a fraction of what is out there. Okay? But guess what? Guess what? I tried to put this out on Twitter. I first tried to DM someone. Didn't come up. It said, like, there's an error. And then I tried to tweet it. Same problem. Then I sent it to others. They had the same problem. So I had to just screenshot it. And this came out, like, only hours before. So they already had this covered. This is why, folks, I don't want to hear this nonsense of, oh, a private business could do what they want. They are, they are taking taxpayer funds, and the government is using that to advertise, to censor, to mandate. The free market didn't create this. That's the reality here. But this is what we're up against. We have a government poisoning us, killing small businesses, killing children's mental health, while bringing in an invasion, orchestrating it, letting criminals out loose on the streets, and even now, punishing in court people that open businesses during this insane period of time. It is shocking how little people know. My son was out on a playground in the 90-degree Baltimore humidity, and... It's actually very nice today. It's unseasonably cold, but but then it was very hot. And these kids were running around on a playground with with a diaper on their face. And my son said, like, you know you don't have to do that anymore. And the kid's like, really? We didn't know. And I was thinking, what type of parent would do that to a kid? But this is the power of media, of censorship. By the way, I have this all the time. You know, I've written thousands of articles, so sometimes I want to go back and see, you know, hey, I I know I reference a certain point, and I'll Google my name with words that I know are prominent in that article, and nothing comes up. And then one day I tried the same stuff on DuckDuckGo, and it came up right away. So again, that just demonstrates this is what people are seeing. You have another, um, this other reporter who's also a meteorologist from CBS Detroit, and she was fired. You know, she went on air, did what Ivory uh, Hecker did, and announced she was going to sit down with Project Veritas. Her interview is now out today. Um, She talks about just how, you know, they were mistreated, being forced to be tested for COVID all the time. Um, She she talks a lot about their COVID coverage at CBS Local, censoring any information on the vaccines. Not allowing her to ask you know, tough questions of uh, prominent guests. So that's another whistleblower. And again, this is what we need to start having. Just complete break-off from the system. Complete break-off. So we got that. We got some good lawsuits going. The Indiana University lawsuit on vaccines. We're going to need that very soon. But I just want to make one point before we have on our guest. All this talk I'm hearing about, will Ron DeSantis run for president? I frankly find it annoying. And I say this as someone who's really championed him before anyone has ever heard of him. 
If you're worried now about the 2024 presidential election, you are really lost. Folks, if you would give me a choice between Ron DeSantis being president of the current unreformed GOP versus having a Democrat president in Washington, but every elected red state GOP official from school board and county judge and county commissioner and state legislator to governor and attorney general being like Ron DeSantis, I'd pick the latter and you'd be stupid not to. That is our job. And that begins with the primaries of the midterms, which are less than a year away. You don't have to wait till 2024, but really they're less than a day away. Every day, if you are a red state majority, a conservative majority in a red state, in a red county, you could influence and pressure them and begin now recruiting candidates against them. The two work together. We see the beautiful results with Greg Abbott, and he, he just called a special session, I believe July 8th. We're going to be covering that and working on that a lot. That's where it's at. You give me 20 red states, heck, I'll take three or four that have Ron DeSantis at every level of government. Dude, the amount you could do with that is more than you could ever do with the irremediably broken federal system in Washington. That's what where we need to focus. And again, I'm very heartened by watching these school board uh, protests and, and gatherings this is where the next revolution is going to take place. Now, our next guest is sponsored by one of our team leaders from Missouri. Liberty Estate Plans. Okay, folks, these days you need to do everything you can to protect your home, savings, investments, vehicles, even your guns from ridiculous lawsuits and the government. Liberty Estate Plans makes possible ironclad estate protection for every American. They're affordable and unlike any other estate plan you've heard of. They keep your estate private, out of reach from you know Medicaid, probate. They give you control now so you can pass on your estate seamlessly to your children. Each plan is customized for your unique situation. They don't just fill out stock forms. Um, and basically, you'll pay a one-time fee, and then you could call, call them anytime. Andre Ong, um, a great friend of mine, he is our Missouri Liberty Strike Force leader, really doing good things there. Um, so if you are in Missouri, make sure you sign up with him. And you know, if you are working on financial stuff, make sure you give him a call. Um, and, and look, if you already have an estate plan but want to make sure it does everything you need, just run it by him. Totally free. Um, you go to libertyestateplans.com, schedule your free consultation. Again, libertyestateplans.com. Tell them Daniel sent you. will give you 20% off. Folks, make sure you create a castle and build a moat around your estate. Now, folks, when we're talking about the latest news on the mRNAs and the experimental shots, there's so much going on. You take a broad view we obviously have tons of censorship. We already know we have a lot of smoke and some fire, okay? I mean, no one could deny that the number of reported adverse incidents are already, A, much greater than the experts predicted, and B, much greater than any vaccine we've had 
um, in recent memory, if ever. And we already know that no matter where you stand on the virus in general, the strategy towards the virus, the vaccines in general, we know that people with prior infection and children and young adults are not at risk in any serious clinical way that would ever engender a need to pursue dramatic uh, lifestyle changes such as lockdowns and masking or uh, experimental shots. And yet they're pushing them anyway while censoring that info. So the question to the us laymen is, what else is going on that we don't know about? So with us today is Dr. Peter McCullough, uh, has really been on this show a number of times, gotten so much good feedback from people. Um, uh, he's here to answer your questions. He's a clinical cardiologist, epidemiologist, professor of medicine at Texas A&M University College of Medicine. Um, he's also at Baylor. And folks, he wrote the first major academic paper on actual treatment of the virus. You would think the NIH would be all over that. That's the job of the government. But instead, it's left to individual doctors to do, and there aren't that many of them. So with us is Dr. McCullough. Thanks so much for fitting us in to your busy schedule. Well, Daniel, thanks for having me. Your podcast is absolutely terrific. It gets the top reviews of, of anything I've heard. And look, part of it is because of the guests I have on that I don't try to seek out the people with the biggest social media followings just to juice up numbers. I find the people with the best stories and the best information, and you've really been all over the place since I last had you on. Could you give us a basic overview of what we're seeing with the heart problems, uh, the reactions to these shots, who they seem to be affecting, and also if you could explain why, because this is obviously your specialty, um, you know, the cardiovascular system. What does the spike protein have to do with the heart? I'm assuming this is not just voodoo. This is not just coming from nowhere. No, it's not. And just so the listeners can know, I'm an internist and cardiologist. I trained in epidemiology at the University of Michigan. And I maintain my board specialties in both of those areas. I'm the president of the Cardiovenal Society of America. I'm the editor of two major journals. I'm the senior associate editor of the longest standing cardiology journal in medicine. So when COVID-19 hit in the last year, I can say basically I've done a fellowship in virology and immunology. I literally have reviewed thousands of reports. I've treated hundreds of patients, advised on thousand more. I've testified in, in the U.S. Senate and advised multiple states and agencies on this. And so I have really developed, in a sense, medical authority on this issue, including the vaccines. And what has been learned is that the three vaccines on the market, Pfizer, J&J, &J, and um, Moderna, are considered genetic vaccines, meaning that a vaccine normally is either a dead virus or an inactivated virus, or a protein. But vac vaccines prior to this year were always something that couldn't invade your cells. The vaccines couldn't make you sick. The new genetic vaccines are very different. All these vaccines either use messenger RNA or they use adenoviral DNA in the case of Johnson & Johnson, but they basically deposit a payload of genetic material into your cells. That's how they work. And that payload produces the spike protein. 
Now, everyone's seen a picture of the virus. It's like a ball, and there's spikes on the surface. We've learned now that the spike protein is the product of gain-of-function research. This is this big deal where the spike protein was altered intentionally to make the virus more contagious and more lethal. And the spike protein basically is what causes the damage in the body. It goes and damages the lungs, the brain, the heart, the kidneys. Uh, it damages blood vessels. The spike protein causes blood clotting. So the spike protein is the dangerous part. The ball of the virus, you see the ball, that's a nucleocapsid. That doesn't really cause any problems. It's the spike protein. So the payload of these vaccines is the genetic material that causes the human body to make the spike protein. So when somebody takes the vaccine for the next several days, the genetic material is taken up into one cells and then the human body produces the spike protein. And the grand experiment is, can we get the body to produce spike protein and generate immunity? And can that protect human beings and do it safely? And what we've learned is the answer is no. And what we've learned is that the human body uh, takes up the genetic material. It doesn't just stay in the arm. We are told originally it stays in the arm. It turns out it goes everywhere in the body. Um, the lipid nanoparticles, uh, it's been shown with, certainly with Pfizer and almost certainly with Moderna. And we knew from prior studies of nanoparticles, they are preferentially taken up in the ovaries, which is a very uncomforting uh, thought, but that's where they land. And in the female body, they are uh, taken up avidly in the ovaries. And the human body starts to make this spike protein. And uh, it doesn't just stay in the cells. A paper from Ogata from Harvard a few weeks ago shows it circulates widely in the body for about two weeks after the first shot. Second shot is no longer measurable because the antibodies squash it down. But we have two weeks of exposure now to a protein that is a product of gain-of-function research out of a Chinese lab. And the protein that is produced in the vaccines is the original Chinese Wuhan spike protein. It's not a variant. It's the original Wuhan spike protein. And so what we've learned is now that we understand the biology of it, lo and behold, the vaccine itself directly causes organ injury, heart inflammation, maybe because the spike protein travels to the heart or because the spike protein is pathologically you know, generated within heart muscle cells. It goes directly to the brain. It's been found in the brain. It's been found in the lungs, kidneys, GI tract. Um, it directly causes blood clots. We've heard of blood clots, blood clots, blood clots, initially with J&J, &J, but it's 30 to 40 times higher with Pfizer and Moderna. Blood clots are dangerous. The human body has mechanisms to keep our blood flowing. We don't need blood clots in the brain or in our legs and our lungs. And the blood clots uh, problem with the vaccines has been uh, extraordinary. So what's come up of interest recently is just this explosive relationship with myocarditis or heart inflammation due to the spike protein uh, in younger individuals. And it seems to hit men more than women. So much so that in younger people, no one should die after a vaccine. I can tell you last year before COVID, all the vaccines given, we probably give a billion shots of vaccines in the United States, ages 20 to 30, Daniel, nobody died. Zero. Mm -hmm. Zero people died. Vaccines shouldn't kill people. Here in the United States with COVID-19, we're approaching with the current sets of vaccines, we are approaching 6,000 deaths. And there's been deaths in the age of 20 to 30 years old. 
and they are rolling in. And so the CDC finally, after a lot of pressure, is uh, after the FDA met uh, week before last, this week is going to have a rolling meeting to evaluate hundreds of cases of myocarditis, of which 90% of these kids are admitted to the hospital with chest pain, EKG changes, blood tests showing heart injury. Probably 20 to 40% are developing heart failure. They need to go on heart failure medications. Um, they've become aware. I've seen these patients in my practice. It's an unqualified disaster. Keep in mind, people under age 50 have a less than 1% chance of hospitalization and death. No one under age 50 would need a vaccine for something that was such a low risk. And certainly, the younger we get, the lower risk people are. There should be absolutely no reason why a young person should take a vaccine and even risk a single case of myocarditis, let alone hundreds across the United States, let alone thousands of deaths overall. So I've been on the national news now and several times, you know, it was just um, uh, Monday and Tuesday of this week. So in the last two days, it was run twice on Fox News. Dr. McCullough says no vaccine for anybody under age 30, period. End of story. The German authorities say nobody under age 18 gets a vaccine, period. World, hey, World yeah. Health Organization says, yeah, they just, you know, they've been vacillated on the recommendations, but they've also come out and said no vaccine for people under age 18. So I'm not alone. Sure. And and obviously, when you look at the age range, we're saying even if there is no other fire from this smoke, if 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 the incidents we see on theirs and the European Union's equivalent, now they have over 15,000 deaths, so 1.5 million uh, uh, adverse responses, half of them being serious. Uh, even if that's the entire universe of problems, that level risk is still greater than the risk of the virus for younger people. So that much we know. But the question a lot of people want to know is, is there a greater universe to this problem? So again, you point out to almost 6,000 deaths, but, you know, they'll say, look, yes, that's a little bit more than it's been in the past. It's more than maybe advertised, but that's still tiny relative to the denominator of, of vaccines that have been distributed. Do you feel that there's reason to believe the effects are much more widespread than being reported? They certainly could be. And uh, here's the situation. It takes a lot to get admitted to a hospital. I mean, you really have to have some dramatic symptoms. And the myocarditis cases that the FDA reviewed two weeks ago, they had a universe of 800 cases accumulated so far. 245, they thought they had enough. They had to get you know at least some information on them to discuss. 90% of those, I was on the call, 90% of those were hospitalized. I mean, come on. That means they had some real danger signals on the EKGs, on the blood tests. Some of them were going into heart failure. I can't imagine how many kids who get the vaccine. We know from the May 27th New England Journal of Medicine Pfizer publication of the age 12 to 15 group, we know 60 to 80 percent of the kids get really sick after the vaccine. They get fevers to 38, 39, 40 degrees, muscle aches, body aches. Um, chances are some of those kids also had chest pain and they kind of rode through it because they had body aches all over. And maybe they actually had myocarditis as well. So I think myocarditis in the younger group may be the tip of the iceberg. 
And so, if this is the tip of the ice, iceberg. That, that means in three to six months, we're going to have kids with heart failure and sudden death. So that's what I wanted to know. That's why, because the CDC director, Dr. Walensky, is saying, yeah, myocarditis, most of the time it kind of clears up, not a big deal. Uh, you're, you're a lifelong cardiologist. Um, what would you say to that long term? Are we now taking young hearts that are perfect and healthy? Are we now giving them long term problems? I think we potentially are. The guidelines that exist in cardiology say for a young person with myocarditis, they actually have to go on drugs to prevent heart failure. They have to go on drugs called uh, uh, RAS inhibitors and beta blockers to prevent heart failure. So there's a patient I'm going to see tomorrow in my office. He was uh, diagnosed here in DFW. He was seen by a doctor in a community hospital and appropriately put on these drugs. Now the question is, how long should you stay on them? Well, the guidelines say three to six months. So listen, three to six months of young kids being on heart failure medications is completely unnecessary. If they just don't take the vaccine, they have zero risk of this. And they have essentially zero risk of any COVID difficulties. So the idea here is just say no. You know, RC Rapper has got one of the best young person's videos out there. And it's called Just Say No. It's the best message to kids and parents. Just say no. You don't have to do it. Don't do it. It's dangerous. Just say no. It's just that simple. There will be zero risk of myocarditis if they don't get an injection in the arm. One case is too many. Now, looking at the realm of possibilities in terms of adverse effects, I think an important question I'm getting a lot is when do people know they're out of the woods? So I heard you describe the first shot before it's the spike is quashed with the antibodies uh, seems to be a threat. But then I'm seeing literature that says it's the second shot that might be more problematic in terms of causing myocarditis or other side effects. So is it the first shot or the second shot? And then also two weeks, three weeks after both of them, are you out of the woods or do we still have this concern based on the research from the original SARS, um, you know, vaccines that were scuttled uh, last decade because the mammals were developing autoimmune diseases maybe nine months later? Are there still concerns of long-term effects? Um, The CDC has released information suggesting that you get the first shot for myocarditis, it's the first shot, and then there is this immediate risk in the next two days, and then the second shot, that risk is amplified. To me, that suggests not circulating spike protein, but locally generated spike protein in the heart muscle cells, because the second shot rejazzes the genetics of the cardiomyocytes to produce spike protein, which almost certainly is damaging to the heart muscle cells. The heart muscle cells are very oxygen avid, you know, that's your pump, you're using your pump every day. The last thing you want your heart muscle cells to do is produce the Wuhan spike protein. I mean, you just don't need it. It's just, that's a scary thought. And um, that's almost certainly what's, what's happening. The risk on the second shot, again, appears to be explosive in the next two to three days. The other risks seem to have a tail to them. So the blood clotting risk, Um, and blood disorder risk, low platelets, what's called vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea, that peaks at about two weeks and tails off at about 30 days. The neurologic syndromes that we're seeing, um, anything from brain fog to paralysis, loss of cognitive function, blindness, um, all of these things are being seen as the genetic vaccines are deposited in the brain. 
those seem to have a much longer window. I'd probably say 90 days on those. So I've I've seen a patient, it's June. I saw a patient who got the vaccine back in April and I had to do her report because she's neurologically devastated. She's lost her ability to remember. She can't walk correctly. Her The bottom of her brain called the cerebellum isn't functioning well. And the, the vaccine-induced neuro injuries, I think, are, in the adults are very disconcerting. So one of the things that concerns me from what I've seen, but I wanted to get an expert opinion on this, is really long-term. You know, just indefinitely, they got these shots. Um, it does take over part of your immune your immune response that we typically didn't have with traditional vaccines. And then I read literature that people that already had the virus, so their system's already primed, it seems like they could be more at risk to, to getting more severe reactions. We had some studies, a pair of studies in the UK that seemed to indicate that based on the data. So my question is going ahead 6, 12 months, even years, is there a concern that those that have gotten these shots will somehow be more at risk to have some dysregulated immunal response to, I don't know, the flu or some sort of other virus that hits them? Well, there's a hint. We know that the genetic vaccines um, cause the body to make a pretty narrow library of antibodies against the spike protein, let's say 50 antibodies or so. It's completely unlike the natural immunity, which could be libraries of a thousand or more antibodies, over a thousand T cell changes that occur at the natural infection. So the natural infection biologically is so much stronger uh, than the vaccine in, in terms of protecting immunity. And natural infection is wonderful, natural immunity. Patients don't get serious illness twice. It doesn't happen. There hasn't been a single credible case and uh, it's been shown time and time again, even with exposure, there's a recent paper from Cleveland Clinic, even people naturally immune who get exposure, ambient exposure in the hospital to patients, they can't get it. So naturally immune is perfect. You can't improve that. It, it, and, and the CD, the FDA, the Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, they knew that. They excluded COVID recovered patients from their clinical trials. Even the newer, safer vaccine, the Novavax vaccine, they exclude COVID recovered. So COVID recovered patients under no circumstances should get the vaccine, under no circumstances whatsoever. Three papers, as you mentioned, two from the UK, one from New York, show higher rates of safety events, one of them landing people in the hospital. So there is zero possibility of benefit, zero, and only the opportunity for harm. Now, sadly, in these studies, it turns out 25% to 30% of people getting the vaccine have already had COVID. And so, you know, they've, they've been kind of propagandized into getting the vaccine. Like, oh, I, I thought you could get it twice. And I, I'll ask people, well, do you know anybody? Do you know anybody who's gone on the ventilator twice? Have you ever seen a nursing home where it sweeps through the nursing home twice? They go, well, no, I haven't. I said, well, think about this. You've been hearing a line of propaganda. Propaganda is the correct word. When there's intentional uh, misleading of the public on a mass basis, by governmental authorities, that's called propaganda. And it's very overt. So the Trusted News Service came out in December and said, listen, we are only gonna give information that's gonna promote mass vaccination, that we're gonna squash anything on early treatment and anything on vaccine safety. It's been stated overtly, uh, Twitter, YouTube, all the social media said, listen, this is what we're doing. We are only gonna promote the vaccine and everything else we're gonna scrub. And so Americans should know this. That's the reason why they're listening to your, your podcast, which is, which is really among the best in the whole country, because they are desperate to get 
high quality, citable, referenced information. And it's coming out so quickly that um, it's people like myself and others that are interpreting this information from research labs and from preprint to give you the information. Um, you know, I'm a regular contributor on Fox now, and Laura Ingram asked me one time, she always gets me to try to criticize the governmental leaders. And I, I just don't think that's right because, you know, they're, they're doing their jobs and, and, you know, who am I as just a public citizen to, uh, to, you know, take that stance. But what I do say, which is fair, is that our government agencies are running about six to nine months behind on the information. So the CDC, for instance, still doesn't recognize the three papers showing that vaccines cause harm in patients. The CDC probably will never recognize for another nine months the Cleveland Clinic study showing no benefit of vaccination in COVID recovery patients. So they're just running so far behind on this that the government recommendations just have to be thrown out. I mean, people have to go to experts to get guidance, and that's the reason why um, a lot you know, reach out to me and others. So are some physicians, do you feel, are they reluctant to report adverse events from the vaccine? You know, when you assess the VIRS um, reporting, the database, so some will say, well, you know, these are unverified. We don't even know that, you know, we, we haven't fully investigated that all these are true. Um, and they're trying to say maybe perhaps they're overstating the problem. But based on your experience working the VIRS database, um, would doctors be trigger happy to report them, report these adverse events when they are not 100% sure they're vaccine related? Well, I can tell you, I personally have made uh, VAERS entries on vaccine injuries. So I have personal first, first-hand knowledge of it. And so the process is, let's say a patient comes in and they were hospitalized last week with a blood clot after getting Pfizer or Moderna. Okay, that happened. And it's verifiable. I look at the hospitalization. Sure enough, they were in for a blood clot. They needed blood thinner. They needed treatment. They're in there for a week. Now they're on blood thinners. Okay, it's happened. I need to report this. So the first thing is I need their vaccine card to figure out what vaccine they got and when they got it because I need the lot numbers. Okay, very important. And then I have to start filling out all these, uh, these sheets on the computer, my name, my office, who I am, who's the patient, the patient's phone number, the patient's email, what hospital they were in, what happened, what drugs were they on, well, vaccine number, shot number one, shot number two. It is detailed. It takes about half an hour. And that gets uh, into the CDC. And then email comes back saying, we've received this, and this has a temporary VAERS number. It has a temporary VA. Then the CDC goes through and actually has to verify all this. They verify. They make sure the patient was hospitalized. And in fact, they did have a blood clot. And then they post it onto the permanent VAERS number site. So what you're seeing on the internet is the mm. permanent numbers. These are permanent CDC verified numbers. These things really happen. 5,993 deaths, 20,737 hospitalizations. I won't read them all, Daniel, but these are CDC verified. There's 358,379 verified reports. The ones that, that if, a, if a patient just said, oh, I felt funny, and they entered it in themselves, and the CDC couldn't find anything seriously about it, it wouldn't advance on to getting a permanent number. We know that 80% of these reports are done by doctors and nurses and healthcare personnel where they think the vaccine caused it. So the person on the ground seeing the patient has already thought that, listen, I think the vaccine caused the blood clot. 
And mm. uh, I can tell you in all the ones I've reported, I think the vaccine is responsible for what's going on. It was pretty clear that it fit the time frame. Now, if I had somebody who got the vaccine back in December and in June they went on a plane ride and they were on a plane for eight hours and they had a blood clot, I probably wouldn't report it. I'd say, well, it's probably related to the fact you're on a long plane ride and you got a blood clot. So the doctor's judgment saying that these events were related to the vaccine, I think is really strong. We also know a couple things in VAERS, there's been a lot of analyses, the really terrible things like, like deaths, they all pile up on days one, two, and three after the vaccine. It's explosive. It's explosive. There's a, an epidemiologist, Dr. Rose from Canada, that's done very good time analyses. And she's convinced the vaccine is causing them because they all pile up on days one, two, and three. And then there's a tail out to about 30 days. So, so then that it, would suggest that based on what you're saying, that the numbers could be lowballing because one of the big questions I had was you look at a lot of the stories and they talk about the younger people. And, and it certainly is egregious that you would have younger people taking this risk when they don't really need it. But is it that the risks are more acute to young people for whatever reason? Or is it just that they're more verifiable? You know, this whole debate over people like Hank Aaron, he died very shortly after the vaccine. He was old, but he didn't really appear to have been sick. Um, and I'm just picking him as one example. But, you know, you take people in their 70s and their 80s, certainly. Um, is there a f concern that a good number of those people could have also gotten seriously ill or died as a result of the vaccine, but it was chalked up to old age or whatever. Well, I, I think this. If, if you look at the, let's say, J&J trial program, they had 60% of people in the trial who had no medical problems whatsoever, none. Most of these trials recruited the cleanest populations. So once you start using this genetic vaccine in somebody who's got diabetes and high blood pressure and they've had cancer and they've had all these other problems, that's probably where things really have gone wrong. So the vast majority of adults who've died after the vaccine have other medical problems. In fact, the CDC, the CDC, I think it's really a matter of semantics. They said, well, they didn't die directly due to the vaccine, but they had a severe, severe allergic reaction. They died, they died due to the allergic reaction that was secondary to the vaccine, or they died of a blood clot secondary to the vaccine or a stroke or a heart attack. So the vaccine is always in the causal pathway. The, the, the CDC just hasn't come out and just said the vaccine is killing people dead. But in a, in a sense, you could look at it this way. Without the vaccine, would these people be alive? Almost certainly. I'm looking at 5993 right now in six months. I can tell you the vast majority of these people, by the way, they drive and walk into a vaccine center. They walk mm. into a vaccine center and they get the vaccine. So they're not on their deathbed when they get the vaccine. I mean, there's been some nursing home patients who were, were vaccinated, literally bedridden patients vaccinated. But the vast majority of people vaccinated are ambulatory. They come into vaccine centers. So the question is, how many people are well enough to get up and walk into a vaccine center, get a vaccine, and how many of them are going to drop dead uh, in the next two days? I can tell you the number's not... 6,000. It's, it's got to be just, you know, lightning can strike, but it must be very small. Now, there are papers, there have been multiple papers published on underreporting. So this VAERS system is not an overestimate. There's no way it's an overestimate, but it's probably an underestimate. So uh, let me give you an example. I'm aware of um, uh, a woman who, uh, and I heard the story where her parents in their 70s went off to a vaccine center 
patriotically got vaccinated and the daughter tried to call them the next day and next day, nobody answered, nobody answered. She goes, that's kind of funny. And she went to the house and both the parents are dead. Mm. What's the chances of two people who are healthy enough to go to a vaccine center together, dying together in the next two days? And, uh, you know, there's commotion that the bodies are taken to a funeral parlor. There's all this, you know, shock to the family. And the question is, you know, did somebody find the vaccine cards and make the detailed entries into theirs? You know, <laughs> I doubt it. And, um, and so there have been papers from other vaccines in the past that have put the underreporting at either tenfold or a hundredfold underreported, meaning on the, on the conservative side, we could be at nearly 60,000 deaths, 60,000 deaths. And, you know, you have a sense that the magnitude could be that big because almost everybody knows somebody now in their circles or have heard of somebody in their social circles or their circles of empathy where someone's died of the vaccine or they've been hospitalized with the vaccine or they had a blood clot. I hear it every day now. Oh, yeah, my brother-in-law got a blood clot. He's in the hospital. So-and-so died afterwards. Somebody in my work group died. And so this started to become apparent, really apparent publicly, um, right around early April. And the rates of vaccination started dropping off. I mean, dropping off the cliff. And people just quit going to vaccine centers. You know, that nobody wanted to say anything, but, you know, the, things looked really bad. And um, I think I... I really stopped my enthusiasm for suggesting the vaccine around March. And I was probably yes. slow to react to this. Um, by April, it's pretty clear. I drive past the vaccine center every day on the way to work. And I can tell you, it's been, parking lots been empty. They've had cones out. They've had police officers ready to direct traffic. No takers, none. I checked recently. I've been following the Houston Methodist case. I logged into Harris County Vaccination Center website uh, to just see, you know, how busy are they? And they listed every single vaccination center and every single appointment time. Sheets and sheets and sheets of this on the Internet. Nobody signed up. Zero. Zero people going into the vaccine centers. And so you can see the gross, um, really macabre type of distorted, coercive tactics that are being done. Now there's raffles saying, here, take a risk on the vaccine and you could, you could win a million dollars or you could win a college scholarship or take the vaccine and you can do this. You can see these tactics. Houston or you're, Methodist, or you're allowed to breathe. You're allowed to breathe freely. To breathe. It's funny because the, the, the mask was like greater than the vaccine. I mean, the mask was unbelievable. It was impervious, that mandate. But it broke around that time frame you're talking about when they saw it hit a brick wall, they badly needed to show, well, there's something. So rather than making it risk assessment, which would, would have always had children not needing any of this, they made it vaccine based so if you have the vaccine you're 90 years old you're good to go but if you don't and you're eight years old well you have to wear a mask and it was very interesting the way they because even cdc january february they really started to come out finally like you said six to nine months later children really aren't at risk they were pushing for schools to get back in session but then when it came to promoting the vaccine they kind of reneged on that and made it again not so much age-based but vaccination status-based which i think ties into the timeline you're talking about i know your time is short i want to get to some really quick things um you know one of the theories about this virus is that 
it might be like some hypothesize OC43 began in the 1889 Russian flu. It began as a pandemic and then just became endemic. So my question to you is, um, we, we all believe natural immunity is, you know, as impervious as it always is. And to the extent the vaccines work or don't work, they're going to work. And, you know, it's not going to rise and fall based on this uh, variant business. Um, but my question is, is there a scenario where um, there is a so-called variant, but it's actually good news where it mutates to the point that it becomes endemic, almost like a rhinovirus, a cold where, yeah, you, you might be able to get it again, like you can get a rhinovirus again, but the entire pretext for even worrying about this is over because it's no longer a pandemic. Do you see COVID headed in that direction? Yes, I think you did a really good job setting that up. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Keep in mind that with MERS and SARS, the two previous pandemics, those were actually probably natural viruses. And so they got to zero cases. You know, they had like a 90 days of this as an outbreak and it got to zero cases and it burned out basically. Here, you know, we're more than a year into this and this thing isn't burning out and it just keeps mutating. And I think because of this manipulation of the spike protein, the manipulation of the spike protein enabled this virus to live much longer in a pandemic. I, I think it's gonna become an endemic organism uh, it's going to be another one of the, you know, several dozen viruses that cause the common cold, and then people will, will generate immunity. You're seeing the curves, by the way, burn out everywhere in the world simultaneously. And the only places where it really fires up is when a new mutation gets a foothold uh, and it's not squashed with uh, treatment. So um, India was the most recent example. And we're trying to brace our, our colleagues in East Asia where they have been, you know, Philippines, Indonesia, um, Pepe, New Guinea, Malaysia, um, Thailand, they haven't seen much. Yep. And we're just telling them, listen, get ready with early treatment, squash this right away, and don't let it get out of control. And, and we'll be fine. Uh, it obviously made a run through Italy. It made a run through the UK. In Italy recently, the um, home treatment program called Treatment Domiciliary, led by Eric Grimaldi, they just held major rallies in the plazas in piazzas in Italy, thousands and thousands of people, and they declared zero hospitalizations with early treatment. They use a hydroxychloroquine-based approach, but mm. the pictures that came out of Italy were tremendous. It was a great victory. You'll never see that on uh, the social media and the real news, but you know, people who are really seeking real information, I can tell you there really were tens of thousands of people, and they were cheering with signs about how they've basically beaten coronavirus. Now, at the same time, there were rallies in the UK, and they were actually demanding early treatment. People are holding up signs make, saying, make ivermectin available to us, make hydroxychloroquine, give us the drug protocols. So, you know, the people, people find out about this. In the United States, fortunately, we just took over. The doctors organized. We've got telemedicine services. People get the drugs every day. There's a wonderful free service called MyFreeDoctor.com. It runs by charity, and they will call in the drugs. After you do a telemedicine visit, they call in the drugs. They see thousands of people every day. There's, there's uh, Speak with an MD, all these other um, telemedicine platforms. 
Wait, wait, wait. so you said myfreedoctor.com and and they have access to those that will prescribe and distribute this? Because I'm getting tons of emails from people. They have this problem. They can't get someone willing to prescribe ivermectin or something like that. Yeah, myfreedoctor.com is probably the best service because they have such a a huge staff of doctors. They work 24 by 7 and it's free. So you don't have to use your insurance or anything. And it works by donations. It's like, you know, if you are happy, you can make a donation. And it's wonderful, and tons of people donate. But um, they will use the local pharmacies. If the local pharmacies refuse patients to, uh, the drugs, they use a mail-order pharmacy that will get the drugs there overnight. And we basically took over treatment in the United States. We squashed the curves at the beginning of January. COVID never came back after that. And as long as we keep our foot on the pedal of early treatment, we only need to treat about 25% of people who get COVID-19. It's just the older, high-risk people, young people we don't treat. We simply recommend nutraceutical bundle, good nutrition, hydration, and get through the illness. And uh, young people, typically under age 50, need no treatment. They'll breeze right through. Get natural immunity. Natural immunity can never get COVID again. And I, I think every person, young person who gets COVID, it's a blessing. It Honestly, it's a blessing. It's like a cold. You're through it. You'll never get it again. You can't carry it. You can't give it to anybody and I testified in the Texas Senate March 10th of this year. I said, listen, we're at herd immunity. We're at, you know, by the CDC calculation, we're at 80% herd immunity. doesn't mean that COVID can't Is extinct. You know, hit. It just can't spread. And when they opened up the Rangers, uh, Texas Rangers opener, and um, the opener, uh, they had everybody sitting shoulder to shoulder, no masks, anything else. But boy, I tell you, the public health officials were on that. And we have very good public health in DFW. They were looking for outbreaks that you cannot imagine. And they couldn't find a single spreader. It just didn't happen because we're at herd immunity. It didn't mean people didn't have COVID. It just doesn't spread very far because there's such a great degree of natural immunity. And that's before any vaccination effect. But and that that's the important thing to remember. Effect. So that that's the important thing to remember here that – you know, this was never a matter of expunging and eradicating every last respiratory virus. The idea was that we would have a run on the hospital so great we've never experienced. No matter what happens or doesn't happen henceforth, and really we knew this after January, we knew we were over that hump. You might have some areas here and there where the herd immunity needs to fill in a little bit more, where they've had less exposure, but we were out of the woods where at anywhere you're going to have a massive run on hospitals greater than the flu. You know, we're nowhere like the flu season anywhere anymore. It's it's pretty much over with. But the final thing I did want to get to, you, you kind of started to reference there before you go, is, you know, we talked about the other half, the concerns of the side effects with the experimental nature of these shots. But in terms of the efficacy, what we're doing, even for people that legitimately are worried, you know, they're 70 years old and have a heart condition and, you know, they don't want to get COVID. But are they really working? I'm not seeing – so I'm, I'm a little bit conflicted here. On the one hand, all the studies seem to show the – you know, there's very few reinfections, uh, you know, not not as good as natural infection, but but very few. But on the other hand, if you look at a macro data sense, you look geographically like you just referenced, and you plot an R-squared correlation on a scattered diagram of any state by state or country to country like UK versus India or, or Eastern Europe. Um, Eastern Europeans aren't into vaccines, very low vaccination rates. There's literally zero correlation between vaccination rates and, you know, cases and hospitalizations over the last three, four months. 
Yeah, I just checked in with um, one of our nurse practitioners in one of our hospitals in Fort Worth. And I just asked you that directly. Out of all the people you currently have in the hospital with COVID, how many have had the vaccine? And she said the majority. So the the vaccine just basically it doesn't work completely. In the clinical trials, it had 90 percent vaccine efficacy, but both placebo and the active treatment had raised less than one percent. They basically recruited clean people who didn't never came in contact with COVID. And so there's been a study from a nursing home in Denmark, 30,000 people. And in the older, sicker people, the vaccine is less effective. So it's interesting. In the nursing home workers, it was 90 percent calculated vaccine efficacy. That's pretty solid. But in the patients, it was only 70% effective. Wait a minute. Uh, that, that's know- a big deal. You, you're telling me that your nurse practitioner there was seeing people in the hospital. Because I, I always, you know, a lot of us were saying, look, we're not going to do the same panic porn on the vaccine that, that the other side did on the virus. Look, you know, it's not a bad, big deal to get a case. The problem is you just don't want a clinical level case. So if the... Um, you know, if the vaccine ameliorates the symptoms, that would be a big success. But you're telling me that you're having people that are hospitalized. Right. But it's a it's a low number. So let's say that hospital in the peak, you know, had 100 COVID patients in there. Now that same hospital has 10 COVID patients, but more than half have had the vaccine. And the UK is seeing the same thing because there's so many people vaccinated, right? It's a mathematical thing. Yep. So if you have more and more people vaccinated and you have a rate of COVID, it can only be the vaccinated people getting COVID. Now, the CDC had reported into them from community health agencies through May 31st, over 10,000 of bona fide breakthrough cases, fully vaccinated breakthrough cases that the CDC verified. And they appeared to be overwhelmed. I mean, what they said is we're going to give up on tracking this. We're giving up. We're only going to honestly track the hospitalizations. We're giving up on the community cases. And that was at 10,000. So disingenuously, the CDC said, well, that's divided by half the country got the vaccine. Well, they didn't check half the country to see if they got COVID. It was only the 10,000 cases that were pushed forward to them. Since that time, there's been another 4,000 well-documented cases on the East Coast. And I think if anybody did a project, they would find out that there's a boatload of breakthrough cases. I mean, it was a week or two ago, more than half of the patients that I was managing with COVID had had the vaccine. So they were furious. They said, listen, I took the risk of the vaccine. I took the risk <laughs> of blood clots and everything else. And I got COVID anyway. And so, you know, the vaccine, I hope, I mean, half of Americans took it. Um, there's people in my family took the vaccine. I hope they got some benefit out of it and no harm. I mean, we wish everybody who volunteered for this large experiment to get some value out of it. But we shouldn't overstate it. It clearly is not something that's solid enough to base any policy on. Like, you know, if you got the vaccine that you could travel and do all these wonderful things. It, 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 the only thing that's really solid is natural immunity. If, yep. if someone set a policy and said, listen, we're only going to have a cruise for naturally immune people. You'd say, listen, that's based on science. Or I've said for the Super Bowl, if they, they could have let in 80,000 you know, fully naturally immune people and sitting shoulder to shoulder and had a complete Super Bowl. Instead, they allowed like 15 vaccinated healthcare workers who were on pins and needles distributed over the entire stadium. That's what they let in. So we're not following the science. This refusal of recognizing natural immunity is really disturbing. And the CDC has been called on this, the NIH. Governor Abbott in Texas had to write an executive order, an executive order in April saying we recognize natural immunity. 
It's legit. We recognize. I mean, can you imagine having to write an executive order to recognize natural. Well, 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 well there's no and, money in natural immunity unless you pay the Wuhan lab for that. You know. I know, but but this idea that naturally immune people are having to wear masks and they're 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 being told by the universities to be forced to take the vaccine and 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 all of this. I mean, natural immunity ought to be this wonderful thing. I, I can tell you right now. I know for sure in Canada. Um, I know this for a fact that if you cross the border and you're naturally immune, you try to cross the border, they'll say, that's not good enough. Go get a test. And then you go get a test and you cross the Canadian border. Or say if you do it by car and they will say, uh, okay, now you get on the other side, take another test. Okay. Now you have to go quarantine for 14 days. It doesn't matter if you're naturally immune. Believe it or not, it doesn't matter if you had the vaccine because the question has been raised. Listen, if I have the vaccine, can I just go around Canada? No, you still have to quarantine for 14 days. So, so it's like the punishment keeps coming on vaccine, no vaccine, um, uh, natural immunity, no natural immunity. Um, our um, approach to this is completely off the rails. It's not related to science. It's not related to epidemiology. It's almost like it's an excuse for totalitarianism, which is a whole nother. You can yep. have other. Experts well, totalitarianism. On and, and I would say a mixture, obviously, of cronyism, because all of the so-called science seemed to, seems to be geared towards maximization of revenue because and i think the the vaccination the obsessive vaccination of children young adults and uh, those with prior uh, infection really prove that because if you would follow the science that would knock off a good percentage of the market share and they just can't tolerate that and that's very scary and now they're talking about booster shots which in itself is kind of an admission that it's not that it's not um uh, impervious, but but doctor, I mean, I just put everything you're telling me together, and it's it's a little bit disquieting because for younger people, there really is no justification for taking the risk. For older people and people that are sicker, that there would be a justification. What you seem to be saying from the literature out there is that there's concern it's less effective. I know there was this Brit uh, this article in the British Medical Journal about this study commissioned by the Norwegian Medicines Agency that seemed to look at nursing home patients, and they raised concerns about, hey, they're certainly very vulnerable to the virus, but on the other hand, it seems like they're very vulnerable to side effects from the vaccine and then possibly not even working. So um, they concluded that you really have to weigh that cost-benefit analysis even more at the other end of the spectrum. That's true. So, you know, this idea that the spike protein kills the elderly, whether it's the natural virus or the vaccine, that looks like it's holding up. The spike protein is the problem. So if you cause the body to make an uncontrolled amount of spike protein, probably some people make so much of it it's just like COVID. I mean, some of these vaccine deaths occur literally within a day. I mean, it's almost, you almost die faster of the vaccine than the natural infection. Natural infection, you know, it's, it's you know, 10 days, two weeks, uh, four weeks, things like this. You know, it, it really, it's really a long drawn out affair, the fatal cases. So um, uh, what we need, and I still think there's going to be a need for in the elderly is a safe vaccine. So we heard last week, Novavax. Novavax had their top line data, and just like everybody else, they had a huge clinical trial, you know, 30,000 plus clinical trial, just like Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, &J, and they had 90% vaccine efficacy rates measured over the same time. In fact, they have a little longer follow-up than Pfizer, Moderna, and the Novavax vaccine is not a genetic vaccine. They have taken the spike protein, 
they have, in a sense, just have it as an antigen, a protein. It's like a tetanus shot. It's just a protein. And it's injected. It doesn't go in your cells, and your body forms immunity to it, like a tetanus shot. And it looks, the safety profile looks like a tetanus shot. Little sore arm, no serious things that we can see so far, um, no grade three or four reactions, just one and two. It looks much safer. So maybe what we need is we just need to move on to safer products. Mm. And so I would not mind at all seeing simply to phase out J&J, Pfizer, Moderna and say, listen, this was first generation, just like first generation yes. anything. A lot of times it's not very good. And we just move on to the next gen vaccines, which and it, there's going to be another one after Novavax, which looks good. Why don't we just fairly look at these vaccines and uh, get a next generation vaccine, protect the elderly. Listen, there are countries, I had a call with Germany this week, Daniel. Germany only has 18% of people vaccinated. So they have a mountain of seniors that are unprotected. Uh, there's a lot of countries that there's still a lot of seniors vulnerable. And if the nursing home workers get it, it'll spread to the seniors and it can be uh, serious in seniors. And so I'm not against vaccination. I just want to see a safe exactly. and limited targeted strategy. Vaccination always made sense and played a role, but not for everybody. Do we need to carpet bomb the entire population with vaccination and kill kids and cause blood clots and all this horror going on? No, it's atrocious. And this college vaccination, we know about 9% of U.S. colleges are trying to force the vaccine on the kids through intimidation. You know, there's no policies written. There's no fair exemptions. There's been no uh, jurisprudence or any uh, due process within these colleges. And um, what we're uh, uh, learning is that a lot of these colleges, even the professors are not taking the vaccine. <laughs> I mean, think about how, how this has been sociologically weaponized. We know that, for instance, the CDC, NIH, and FDA they're not taking the vaccine. So wait a minute. They're the vaccine stakeholders. Shouldn't they be wildly promoting the vaccine? So, so wh wh why would Houston Methodist mandate all their workers take the vaccine, but the CDC is not? And the CDC is operating the program. So you can see the overreach that's happened. Um, and this idea of mandating everybody. What about women who are trying to get pregnant? They can't take the vaccine. What about pregnant women? They definitely can't take the vaccine. So, what about so, recovery? They can't take the you vaccine. You know what, doctor? You're, you're throwing out so many things here, and you've been so generous with your time. This is unbelievable. I, 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 you know, I, I'm loath to take your time, but one more thing that you just mentioned. We talked about long-term effects, okay? This is something that scared me, and I forgot to ask you about this. Um you know, generally speaking, we're seeing it within 30 days. But what about fertility? Is there a concern? If you're telling me that it deposits in the ovaries, is there a concern that that could be immutable or could cause long-term damage? Well, with Pfizer and Moderna, and probably not J&J, &J, but with Pfizer and Moderna, the lipid nanoparticle, lipid nanoparticles, now we know deposit in the ovaries. Prior studies, and actually a study directly from Pfizer shows this, and um, we know that there are numerous reports of um, menstrual cycle irregularities, miscarriages, abortion. So it's, you put two and two together, um, it looks like the vaccines are toxic to kind of female reproductive health. The Moderna application to the European Medicine Agency showed a reduction in fertility in animals. You know, not at the level where they would kill the program, but biologically it was shown in animals. So you put all this together, and if you were to say, 
do we think the vaccines are going to impair female fertility? I would say all the evidence points to the answer being yes. The proof will come out in the next few years if women are having trouble getting pregnant who have taken the vaccine. Wow. That is certainly a lot to consider. Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for what you're doing, for joining us today, and we really look forward to having you back again. Okay. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Take care. Well, guys, I, I planned on uh, you know getting to the Delta variant. I have an article on today, but I figured, why hear from me when you could hear from a guy like that? So we're going to call it um, a day for now. But that was very enlightening. Again, send me your questions if you have follow-ups that you want me to follow up with him. You heard from him. He is not anti-vax. He's actually, interestingly enough, very optimistic about this Novavax, this next one, which seems to work more like a traditional vaccine. And that's part of the point. Like, it's not an all or nothing thing. When you censor and you go like an animal with this, then you prevent us from perfecting it like we would do with anything. And this is something that Trump himself needs to learn. Trump finds a need to just circle the wagons around this and call anyone who criticizes it flat earthers when... You know, really, okay, you could take credit for Operation Warp Speed trying to get something to the market so quickly, and I'm all for doing that with the right informed consent that you tell people, look, this was rushed, here's what we know, here's the percentages we're seeing so far, here's some of the problems, Um, if you're younger, don't take it, if you had it already, don't take it, Um, if you have these conditions, maybe you want to wait off, and certainly, certainly anyone else is optional, I'm all for that, and anyone can make their own decision. And then all the while, you try to perfect it. But the problem is they don't even want to do that because then that would be an admission that this was problematic, um, which is something we don't shy away from when we developed any any other product, including medical products. We have the first gen, second gen. Hey, this works better. And, and that's fine. Instead, this is all going to be like, hey, shut up, you know, take it or else. So, look, I mean, why should a voice like Dr. McCullough be squelched? I mean, tell me where their evidence is to refute anything he said. He's very measured, very balanced. Um, and it's, it's insane that it took this long to even get voices like his uh, to the public eye. And, and when to this day, when you have articles on the web that are discussing this, they get censored. Censorship kills. So anyway, we're going to get back to some other issues tomorrow. Folks, sign up, um, constitutionaction.com, constitutionaction.com to be a member of one of our Liberty Strike Force teams. If you want to be a leader, uh, email me, dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Till tomorrow, God bless you all. Stay informed, and thank you for listening.